Hey everyone, we hope you're having a great week. My name is Eric Johnson, and along with my wife Candace, we are the lead pastors of Studio. We are based in Greenville, South Carolina, and we just want to take a moment and say hello and say thanks for listening to this podcast. So with that, let's get right to it. At the end of the day, our hope is at a minimum being a part of this community inspires you to seek Jesus even more. And it's a catch-22 because sometimes we approach church with this idea that the church is responsible to do the work for me. The church is responsible to stir the hunger up for me. Uh, The church or the pastor or a community of people are supposed to help me get somewhere. And there's truth in that. There's value in that. There's... It's true. I mean, I think all of us have parts of our stories of our own journey of following Jesus that someone else sometimes leads and we follow. We, yep, they, they're, they're the catalyst. But it's undeniable that when you are able to stir that up inside you, it becomes unstoppable. So I want to encourage you, whether your first time here or you've been coming here for any length of time and no matter what duration of your following Jesus, or maybe you haven't followed him, or no matter where you're at in the spectrum of life and faith and all of those things, that the responsibility to follow Jesus really starts inside you. It starts at the very core of who you are. And if you follow Jesus for at least a week, there's at least a moment within that week that you didn't want to follow him. If you've been following Jesus for your whole life, you can tell story after story of seasons of your life like, I'm just bored. I don't, I don't, I'm not motivated right now. But I believe faithfulness is, is one of those things that is powerful and we don't, we don't give much credit to it. And I want to speak to every person in this room, no matter where you're at in your walk with God or with faith or life or wherever you're at, is that it really starts with you. It's your decision. The one thing God does not own in all of the universe is your choice. It's the only thing he doesn't own is your choice. He doesn't own it. He actually does not own your choice. And that's what makes your choice so powerful is when you begin to choose whatever you choose And our heart is that just being a part of this community is that you choose to follow Jesus with all of you. Over 3,000 years of Hinduism, over 2,600 years of Buddhism, over 1,000 years of Islam, and roughly 100 or so years of secularism, and none of these religious traditions can affirm or value the human life. There was a movie that came out a few years ago. It was released uh, around the 20-year anniversary of 9-11. And the title is Worth. And it's a story about after 9-11 and the atrocity that took place in America. And, and we, I'm, almost all of us were alive then. If not, you definitely have heard about it because we talk about it every September 11th. But following the 9-11 and the towers and the Pentagon and all those things that went down, the government was trying to find out how do we ease the pain of the family that lost a loved one. 
And so they hired a lawyer, and this movie is basically about this lawyer. His job was he was tasked with the responsibility to monetarily give value to a human life. So that would help the government to go, how much can we help ease the pain and suffering in a monetary value? And the whole film is about, about trying to put a dollar value on a person. And the, the reality of that struggle, it's you can't. You can't actually value a human being in any form of money. But yet that was his job. And so the whole film is about just the process and just the impossible task of trying to find how to define the value of a human being. You see, when you're not created in this dimension, you can't be valued by anything in this dimension. You were created outside of this dimension. You were created outside of time and space. You were imagined by the creator, by God. And because of that, you can't be placed, nothing can equal the value of you in this dimension because you weren't created in this dimension. Have you, have you ever wondered what the ambition of God is? Have you, ever, have you ever asked the question, what is God after? Like, what's his end goal? Uh, what's his ambition? Like, what? I know he doesn't wake up because he doesn't ever go, I don't know. We don't really know God's sleep pattern. So, but when, he, when he's there, what motivates him? What, like, what's his ambition? What's his drive? What gets him going? I mean, what, what inspires him? I don't know. I, I, these are all questions that I think about way too much. My God, what is your ambition? Like, what, what's the deal with you? Uh, and depending on your life experiences, depending on your own upbringing, depending on your own experience with faith or maybe no faith, will, will determine your, your view of God's ambition in life. If you were raised in a, an atheistic or a secular context, uh, God is not a reference point. Uh, there, there's no wondering if God, what God's ambition, what is he after, what's his desires. You're not thinking about those things because you're, there is no God in your worldview, in your framework. And so your, your, your questions are thought to more like this. The universe controls my fate, my purpose, and my design. And that's just how you think when you come from that kind of background. And at the end of the day, the common foundation of that kind of worldview is I am the center of the universe. And that's really what secularism is. It puts you at the very center of everything. It's about self. It's about you. Maybe if you were raised or been influenced by Eastern religion, the question is just deposed with which God are you referring to? Because there's many gods. There's millions of them in some cases. And we learn in scripture where Paul goes into a city and there were even idols that had the unknown God. In other words, they had no name for it. It's just there. So if you're brought up in more of an Eastern tradition of beliefs and religion, you, you question, well, which God are you referring to when you ask me the question, what is God's ambition? And the emphasis in Eastern religion is emptying your mind and sacrificing your body. But if you come from a Christian tradition, which I would assume most people in this room do, or at least you're in this space where we follow the Christian tradition of faith, and we believe there's one God. There's one name above all names. There's the king of all kings. 
But even in the Christian tradition, there's so many different perspectives of the ambitions of God. I mean, it's just so wide-ranging. I mean, some people in the Christian tradition believe only a few are selected by God. And it's funny, when you talk to people that believe in that theology that only a few are selected or elected by God, it's amazing how you're always in that group. I've yet to run into somebody that talks about that and they're not in that group. It's like, oh yeah, I've been elected. I've been selected, I've been handpicked. And some people even go to the extremity of it's an actual certain number, which I find so comical that even today, after thousands of years of humanity, and that number's really small. And we think somehow God didn't pick those people by this point, so we just happen to be the remaining one that he chose. Uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm getting off the track. It's just funny to me. It's, some people in the Christian tradition, you, know, you believe God is angry. God is angry, and we're all going to hell. And, you, and you, that is your core reference point is hell and sin, and you're all going to hell. You can go downtown in any major city and you can find someone that is standing on a street corner telling you that. And we're, we believe God is angry. Insurance companies have clauses in their statements that put any major natural disaster as the hand of God. Because the worldview is God is angry, he's mad. So some of us actually carry that view or maybe we're influenced by that view or raised in that view. But even within the Christian tradition, there's such a wide-ranging. And then, then you have others that have a secular worldview that's been superimposed on God. And what did that look like? That looked like you just lower your moral standards to literally nothing. Because now you've given yourself permission to, God thinks what I think is okay is okay. So even in our own tradition of following God, there's such a wide perspective on the ambition of God. So let me ask this question slightly differently. What did God think about you? Ask yourself this question. If God was standing in front of you right now, what does he think of you? What are the thoughts that go through his mind, his heart? What are, what are the phrases that are permeating his being? What, what are the things of, what's his opinion of you? What's his perspective of you? Fill in those blanks. It's a powerful question because I, I have a sense that some of you, your head is telling you right now, I know God loves me. But you notice the dissonance of what your heart is telling you. I know God loves me. I know God loves me. But deep down inside, you don't even know if that's true. You, you sit here today and you don't even know. I mean, you're told God loves you. John 3, 16, that every football game you see on TV, bumper stickers, T-shirts are everywhere telling me, for God so loved the world. But deep down inside, you're not even sure if that's real. Maybe for someone else, but for you, you don't even know if that's real. So if you notice the dissonance, then I want to challenge you we got to ask some important questions right now. So what did God think about you? You see, your answer to that question reveals your perspective and view, and it will affect everything you do in life. 
You can't escape that perspective. If you think God is angry with you, you live your life viewing that God is always mad at you. So your options are to perform, to dance the dance that you think makes him happy, to sing the song that you think makes him happy, because you're just trying to make sure and get your insurance that you're going to heaven and not hell. So your view, if you think God is okay with you determining what's okay and not okay, your entire life is shaped around that. Your entire experience, your entire walk, your entire journey of life is based and predicated on the idea that God's okay with whatever I think is okay. And so you have a very vast array of decision-making and morals and standards in your life. In fact, they may not even be there. And so you see, every perspective view that you have actually affects everything you do in life. So this is an important question. I would like to suggest to you, there's actually a measuring stick. There's a reference point. And it's the person of Jesus. And it's the coming of the Holy Spirit. It's the life of Jesus. He left the dimension and entered into our dimension. And we can see his life in the scriptures. And this is why I want to continually draw our attention back to Jesus on a weekly, if not daily basis. That Jesus spent his life healing, redeeming, feeding people, clothing people. And he confronted any world system that diminished human life. This is what he did. This is what he spent his, what we know, the last three years of his life, it cost him everything. So the reference point of value is there. The reference point of what God's ambition is hidden, it's sitting within the life of Jesus, and not just his life, because as he died on the cross, you don't die on the cross because you're angry with the world. Listen to me, you don't die on the cross because you hate humanity. No one's going to die on the cross because they're angry with someone. There's no logical reason why you would die on the cross for all of humanity, humanity because you hate, because you're bitter. You don't. There's only one motivation, and it's called love. So the answer to the question I proposed, his ambition, and what does he think of you, is that. And not only ends with that, it's actually when he says, hey, after I leave, someone's coming in my place. And as we study the scriptures and we, we hear about this, this introduction of a new character, if, I can, if you'll allow me to say it just for the context, a new person in the name of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, it was named the Spirit of God, the same Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes and you can go into the book of Acts and you can read about it there. This last weekend, I drove to Asbury Theological Seminary. And if you're unaware of what's happening right now in Kentucky, there's, for the last week and a half, roughly two weeks, there's been what many are saying is the next revival, next outpouring or awakening. And so Ab and I, Thursday night at the, hey, do you wanna go? I'm gonna go. 
He said, yeah, let's go. So we hopped in the car Friday and we drove, I don't know, seven hours. And we get to Asbury and it's like eight at night, it's freezing temperature, it snowed on the way, it's cold. I didn't know Kentucky was cold. For some reason, Kentucky sounds hot. <laughs> it's not. It's frozen. Adam and I were like, man, I know Kentucky doesn't sound like a cold place, but man, it's cold. So we drove into this little town of 6,000 people, Wilmore, Kentucky. And we drive in and there are cars and people everywhere. And if you don't know what's happened about a week and a half, two weeks ago, Asbury Theological Seminary, they had chapel. And they had chapel and after chapel was over, some students didn't want to leave. And that exploded, it went viral. It's mind-blowing for me for a lot of reasons. Uh, for those of you that know my background and know my upbringing, for those of you that don't, I, I've been around the church my whole life. And I say that from a perspective of I've seen a lot and been privileged to see a lot. I've been privileged to see so many different expressions of when the Holy Spirit comes into a space. I've seen it on a, on a level where someone wakes up and becomes alive again. They're like, oh my gosh, I'm alive. I'm, I thought I was alive, but I was actually dead. Now I'm alive on just a very beautiful pastoral level. And then I've seen it where stadiums full of people are getting touched by God because they were hungry. And then I've seen everything in between. And so for me, just as my own life experience, is to be able to see this over the course of my 46, 47 years of life had been nothing but a privilege. And I I'm so grateful for that. And so I've had, as you can imagine, different people ask me, what's your thought on this? Is this a revival? Is this an outpouring? Is this an awakening? Is, is, what is it? And, I, and I've always been baffled by people's desire to figure out what it is. Uh, it, 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 and I understand some people have a wired differently than me, and, but I, I have never understood why we argue over a terminology. And I believe it's a real distraction from the actual essence of what's taking place. And, and so we drove in, and I mean, it's, I expect the, the lines are long. And so I dropped Adam off, and I'm going to go park. I'm going to go find a parking spot in this town. And so I find a parking spot a few blocks away, and I'm walking there, and I find him, and he said, hey, everybody says it's at least a three-hour wait. And we went. We thought, we'll just wait all night. It doesn't matter. And so we went, and, but we noticed they're only really focusing on 18 to 25-year-olds, which is beautiful. I thought, it's just incredibly beautiful and strategic. And I'm standing in line, it's freezing temperatures at Adam, we are not getting in that building tonight. <laughs> it's, I mean, I don't mind waiting, but I don't think we're getting into that building at all tonight. And, you know, they have speakers, they have LED screens, they're just trying to steward this. I mean, it's a theological seminary in a town of 6,000 people, and now thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people are crashing this place. And they're doing a beautiful job of stewarding what's happening in this space and being mindful of it's about the students. It's about the students, and it's, it's real beautiful. So we, there's a chapel across the street, and we got in line for that one. Thankfully, that was only 50 people. The other one was thousands of people. And I'm like, I'm 46. I'm not under the age of 25, so I might as well just go to the other chapel. So, <laughs> so we get in this other chapel, and we get in there. And it was really beautiful. We get in there, and it's very quiet incredibly quiet and in the screens you can see the screens of what's being streamed across the street and it's really beautiful it's so subtle it's so simple it is so non-expressive and i love the fact that it looked like that right now 
Now, if it gets expressive, that's cool too. But I just love that because I think for some of us, sometimes our idea of God showing up has to look X. And in this context, it was so, it was so subtle and simple. There's, there's literally no production. It's almost like the opposite of any form. And it's, you know, it's an old, it's an old seminary. So it's old wood floors, wood pews, and a massive organ. I mean, it's just not, it's just not what we would think it's conducive. But yet God said, I'm going to show up here. And what blew my mind is, as you know, people are praying all over the world before this even blew up. But why is this one blowing up? And I don't have answers and I don't need answers to those questions. So I didn't go for a bigger experience. I didn't go to, oh man, is this the, no, I went to simply be there to acknowledge what God is doing in this space, in this expression. So it was simple, it was humble, it was, it was quiet. There were moments where someone would get on stage and confess their sins and thousands of people would erupt, just, just excited that someone is repenting of their sins. And then there's another moment where people, you know, there's one, I, I'm guessing where the seminary student got up and preached a very simple message on Jesus dying for our sins and then gave an altar call. It was just so simple. And then faculty would get up and share a few things and you could tell the faculty and the staff are just so excited about what's happening with the students. And so going to Asbury just highlights again God is up to something right now. And if you can go to their website, if you want to drive there, there's a lot more instructions now because they're shifting their focus this next week. And, and many are saying, are they quenching the spirit? You know, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know, I, to be honest with you. But what, what was the common theme when I was there was this has to go out. So next week, we're going to shift it and make it go out. So that was their focus. So if you have your Bible, open it to Genesis chapter 1. We just have a few minutes left here, and I want to share a few remaining thoughts. Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So God created everything, and he saw what he had made, and he said, it's very good. I'm going to read a passage out of Proverbs 8, verse 30. You can turn there, but I will read it by the time you get there. If you have your phone, it's a little quicker. But Proverbs 8, verse 30 reads, Then I was constantly at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world and delighting in mankind. So the ambition of God, let's just go back to that. The ambition of God, what is the ambition of God? I believe the ambition of God is to be among his people. At the end of the day, I believe his whole desire is to be amongst you. His whole desire is to be with you and to be in you and to be around you and to be in your space. I believe that's the ambition of God. You don't, you don't die on the cross because you're angry or you hate. You die on the cross to create a pathway to be connected to the very thing you created and to bring an opportunity, a pathway to be redeemed, to be healed, to be restored. 
to close the gap where sin created this chasm, this gap. And God's like, I want to be among my people. And many of you are familiar scriptures say, well, what about the Old Testament? What about all the anger that God expressed in the Old Testament? I would say that God was angry at sin. But at the beginning of time, God is walking with Adam in the cool of the day in the book of Genesis. He's literally walking with Adam in the cool of the day. And you fast forward to the book of end of Genesis and the book of Exodus. God finds someone named Moses. And in scripture, God said, this is my friend. So on Moses' tombstone, it says, a friend of God. And they say, what about the book of Judges? If you haven't read the book of Judges, and I know most people don't because it's so depressing. It's so disturbing, the darkness, the evil, and what sin does to humanity. And yet, even within that book, God is constantly looking for men and women that he can raise up to save a nation. So the narrative, the rhetoric in Judges is not anger, hate, and destruction. It's actually love looking for humanity to bring redemption, to save nations. So even in one of the darkest books in all of the Bible, God is raising up Samson, raising up Gideon, raising up Deborah to save nations. So he wants to be amongst us. And then by the time you get to this little peculiar book named Joel in the Old Testament, in chapter 2, God begins to speak to the prophets and begin to give a heads up of what was coming. And in Joel 2, it says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And it goes on and on and on. It was hundreds and hundreds of years later, the book of Acts shows up. And it's in the book of Acts, Peter goes, oh, this is the prophecy Joel said forever ago. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So everything that God is aimed at is being amongst his people. And then by the time you get to Amos, the other small little book in the Old Testament, God begins to speak to a prophet and says, I want to rebuild the temple. I want to rebuild the temple so all nations can come to me. So everything in scripture is aimed at God being amongst you or you coming to him. That's his ambition. And I recognize some of you in here today really are struggling with this idea of I know God loves me, but deep inside I don't believe it. I believe I have failed God. You don't know my story, Eric. Yeah, you don't know my story either. Sound like a junior high kid right there, but that's how sometimes you have to talk. But I love how we find excuses. We find reasons. And today I'm standing here just wanting to inspire you to take another look at what is God's ambition for you. You see, the Holy Spirit is not someone you let into your house once you've cleaned it up. And so many of us are not letting God into all the parts of our heart because we're trying to straighten it up before he shows up. He's the only guest you don't clean your house for. He's the only guest you don't clean your life for. You may do it to your wife. You may do it to your friends. You may do it to the neighbor. But to God, you leave your life a mess because he's the only one that can come in and bring redemption, bring healing to every part of your heart. So I'm standing here today to let you know, God, his ambition is you. 
And it's not driven by hate. It's not driven by anger. It's not driven by judgment. It's driven by love. He actually wants to be in you, around you, and amongst you. So as we are hearing about what's happening in Kentucky and what's spreading all over the earth right now, this is the moment to come before God and give him everything. And you say, Eric, my life's a mess. I, I, I struggle with this. I struggle with this. And that's the beauty of confession. That's the beauty of repentance is you bring it to him. And so many of us are trying to vacuum the house of sin. We're getting in the dustpan that like, let's just try to fix all this before God comes to my life. He's the only one that can redeem that part of you. So today's ambition for me, for you, is this. God wants every part of you. He wants every part of your heart. So if that's you, I'd love for you to come up front. If you're here today and you realize I've not given him all of my heart because I've been working so hard to clean it up. If that's you, I'd love for you to come to the front. We've never done this in a studio before. But if that's you, if this is resonating with your soul, just come to the front and kneel. Just come in the front, prostrate yourself before the Lord. You recognize I am not alive. I feel dead. I feel half-baked. And you recognize I, I, I've, got to, I've got to give my life to him. Thank you for listening. And we hope this talk benefits you in every way possible. For more information about Studio, you can go to studiogreenville.com or go to Instagram and look for studio.greenville. We would also love it if you would leave a review and hit those five stars. Other than that, have a great week and we'll see you soon.